Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Um, I think that's the first time I've ever been described as a Texan, because even though I've lived um, in San Antonio and, and Dallas and Austin since 96, I didn't think I was ever going to be a Texan. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I moved to Dallas uh, in January of 2003, early 2003, and I was this book in some ways was a product of that move because I moved here to join the, uh, the oil and gas coverage team for the Wall Street Journal, which is then and, and now based over in Renaissance Tower. Um, and I was the low guy on the totem pole. I had only been at the Journal a couple of years. And they said, well, you know, as the, the least senior member of the oil and gas team, you get to cover the companies that no one else wants to cover. Um, and so those companies were the independents, Devon. Apache and Anadarko. Uh, frankly, when I was given the list of companies I was supposed to start paying attention to, uh, Chesapeake Energy, which became a huge part of this story, wasn't even on the list. And so I was really lucky because I was there at the beginning. One of the first trips I took, Devin took me over to this new gas field they had over in Fort Worth that they wanted to start telling Wall Street about. Um, and uh, my, my tour guide that day was a former Mitchell uh, engineer went to work for Devin after Devin bought Mitchell, and a uh, real nice guy named Jay, and he showed me around, um, showed me around the area. We saw some, some drilling pads, went over to the Bridgeport gas processing plant. Uh, we didn't even call it fracking at the time. It was unconventional gas is what they called it. Years later, I was back working on another story in Johnson County, just south of Fort Worth, and I met Jay again. He reminded me that we knew each other. Uh, or that, that he had given me that original tour. And I, I pieced out that his full name was Jay Ewing, and his middle initial, in fact, was R. So <laughs> I actually had, uh, that's a true story. So I had a great introduction. To, you know, J.R. Ewing gave me my introduction to fracking. Um, so I lived here for, for a couple of years. And then really the book, so I've been covering oil and gas for the journal. I wrote the first national story about the Barnett Shale um, and wrote the first national story, front page story, about this guy named Aubrey McClendon up in o Oklahoma City. No one knew who he was at that point. Um, but the book really begins, or I really in some ways started writing a book, realized that I had a book, uh, back in 08, uh, 09, when I got a call from my mother. I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, we, uh, my parents still live in Philadelphia, but in the early 70s they bought some land uh, in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania. That's north-central Pennsylvania. And as it turned out, about 100 acres, uh, and they bought it with a bunch of friends. And this was a place to get cheap vacations, just to go away, have your city kids run around in, in the woods. Uh, and as it turned out, it was right on top of some of the most sought-after Marcellus Shale. And so she asked me, well, what should we do? Should we sign a lease? Chesapeake wants to drill on our property. What does this mean? What is fracking anyway? And all of a sudden, I stopped being a journalist, even though I knew what fracking was. And I had to approach this on a more personal level and really try to advise, do, we, do you want to embrace this and 
bring some of the good that comes with it, the money, the leasing payments, uh, the, the generation of a lot of natural gas, uh, which was helping at the time begin to shut down coal production? Or do you want to push it away because there's some threats to it? What if the well's not built right? Uh, what if you, know, you, you use water there, you use groundwater, um, aquifer water? If your aquifer goes, there, there's no water there. Um, and you, know, you like to go up there with your grandkids and run around and what if the air's not good anymore? So there was, there was it, it was difficult. It was a difficult decision. Um, and so before I tell you what I advised, but, but at that point I knew I had a book because not just did I know about this phenomena that was changing the world, uh, certainly changing the United States and the energy landscape, but I had this personal connection to it. So let's start talking about fracking. Because the first observation you can make about fracking is that we don't even agree on how to spell it. The industry spells it F-R-A-C. Uh, opponents typically put the K on the end, F-R-A-C-K. Um, newspapers, I actually used F-R-A-C-K throughout the book because newspapers, that's what we do. AP, Associated Press, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, we all agree it's spelled F-R-A-C-K. Frankly, because we can't understand how you pronounce it frac if it's only with a C. I mean, it sounds like cognac or something. So either we got to do the French pronunciation or not. Um, so we can't even agree on how to spell it. And if we can't agree on how to spell it, how are we going to agree whether it's good or bad for the country and whether it's something we should be doing or not? Uh, you know, whether it's the road to this long sought after energy independence or whether it's going to end up contaminating aquifers and we're all going to re be regretting having done this. Um, and so it became very clear to me that there was this almost cultural war brewing over fracking by 08, 09. And this was really captured quite well one day in Philadelphia when uh, there was a, a conference, a Marcella Shell conference in downtown Philadelphia. And outside, there were protesters. Um, and uh, there was, you know, was hey, hey, ho, ho, hydrofracking's got to go, and ban fracking now, posters. And inside, the keynote speaker was Auburn McClendon. Um, and you know, he is the CEO and chairman, or excuse me, was. He, he is the co-founder, but was the CEO and chairman of Chesapeake Energy. Chesapeake Energy in 2008 drilled 1,900 wells that year and fracked them all. Uh, that was, uh, there may be another company at one point that's drilled 1,900 wells, five wells a day, every single day. Um, I can't figure it out. I can't find it. I doubt that record will be broken anytime soon. Um, so he's inside. He calls the protesters naive. He says, well, they just want renewables, but renewables aren't ready. And if you don't have gas, you can't stay warm. You can't have um, industrial development. You can't even make fertilizer, which uses a lot of natural gas. And he said, what a great vision of the future they have. We're cold. It's dark. We're hungry. I have no interest in turning the clock back to the dark ages, as our opponents do. So that's really, we haven't really come very far since then. We're still yelling at each other. We're still disagreeing. Um, we still haven't figured out, uh, we haven't agreed on a way to spell fracking. So let's take a deep breath and talk about fracking. Because it's sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm here in Dallas. I'm sure a lot of you are connected or have some interest in the oil and gas industry. You're probably a much better and more knowledgeable audience than I've been speaking to over the last few weeks. But there's actually a lot of misunderstanding. People don't really understand what fracking is. And part of that is because despite the fact that we're drilling 100 wells a day and fracking them, despite the fact that we've turned around declining oil production, we've got more natural gas, frankly, than we know what to do with, uh, th this process at the heart of it, fracking, when combined with horizontal drilling, is still a little bit of a mystery. 
because writers and journalists like myself have not gone there to describe it because it's very hard to get permission. So I, I have to give a lot of credit to um, Clarence Casalot of Marathon Oil who uh, finally agreed to let me go on to one of his uh, frack jobs up in North Dakota. And that's how I ended up observing the fracking of the Irene Kovalov 1118H one day in 2012. Nothing strange about this well. It was, like I said, one of 100 more or less that was drilled that day in the United States, one of 10 in North Dakota alone. Um, and, you know, I could have chosen anywhere, lots of different places to go to observe fracking, Pennsylvania, Colorado, South Texas, West Texas, North Texas, um, Louisiana, but, but North Dakota really was, this was the energy boom at its sort of un, its, its, uh, unvarnished um, view of the energy boom at full throttle. And so I went there, and it's, um, it's really unbelievable what's going on. The traffic everywhere. This is a tiny state, the western part of the state. Uh, you could basically fit everybody into a uh, football stadium. Um, when I arrived, I spent a few days in Dickinson. And the, the city engineer had just resigned, citing workload and stress, which frankly is not that surprising because 5,000 residents have moved into the city in two years, making one out of every four people who live there a new resident. Um, there were five job openings for every person seeking a job. This was you know, still at a period where uh, there was high unemployment. Not in North Dakota, though. Um, so what happens during that boom? Well, you go from producing 100,000 barrels in North Dakota a day to almost a million. It almost topped a million in the last couple of months. That's bigger than two members of OPEC, North Dakota alone. And then when you add in the Eagle Ford and the Permian, et cetera, you begin to get a sense of just how big um, this is. And it was a fascinating experience being there, uh, watching it, uh, the, the, you know, the, the flattened pad, the water trucks everywhere, just an incredible, it's, it's really, they're building factories out there. They're going to build a factory, frack the well, disassemble it. And one of the things, so I had this great uh, uh, guy, the, the, the company man, um, <clears throat> and um, we were, he was giving me the tour, and we, we got to the wellhead about a 10, 15-story tall set of valves, and he said, you know, inside there are all these brass gaskets, and the gaskets have little pinholes, and they all need to be facing south, all the pinholes. And I said, oh, well, I'm not an engineer. Well, that's interesting. What, what's the purpose of them all facing south? He says, well, they just have to be facing south, because if they're not, we're just going to get up and walk out. We're not going to frack this well, which is sort of interesting, because what I finally realized what he was talking about, it took me a while, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. If the people, the workers who assembled that one particular piece of equipment weren't paying attention, place all the pinholes in the same direction, which is a completely, it doesn't really matter what direction they're facing. But if they weren't paying attention to that, then how can you be assured they had paid attention to tighten all the valves and to make sure this incredibly dangerous environment, this factory you've just built, is going to work properly? It, it's sort of like the stories you hear sometimes about uh, rock bands who require that their bowl of M&Ms have all the red and the green M&Ms taken out. Well, they don't really care about the red and green M&Ms. But if you're going to build a stage that you're going to go prancing around on, you want to make sure the lights aren't going to fall on you, you need to know that your crew has paid attention to detail. And if they can't be counted on to follow a simple command like take the red M&Ms out, then do you really want to be dancing around on that stage? So there were um, pipes everywhere. You had to watch where you're walking. We spent some time in the chemical van. Um, because. What fracking is, it's really simple. Most of you know this, but it's really quite simple. You drill a well straight down, you turn it, it runs horizontally sometimes for a mile, sometimes for two miles, and then you pump in water mixed with sand and chemicals under extraordinary pressure. 
until something gives. And what gives is the rock. Let's sort of think about if you've been in a swimming pool and you go a couple feet down and your ears start to hurt because the pressure of the water on top of you. The amount of pressure that's being placed on the rock in the Bakken and elsewhere is like sitting on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico with 12,000 feet of water on top of you. They're putting more pressure on the rock than that. So think about swimming just a couple feet down and you start to feel the pressure in your ears. It's really remarkable. You go inside and the guys who are running the whole operation, they're sitting there. It's kind of like, um, if you ever seen the pictures of a NASA satellite launch? all these engineers sitting there with their crew cuts in front of banks of computers. Same sort of thing, except they don't have crew cuts. They've got long hair and beards and mustaches and flowing hair because it's really hard to find a haircut, uh, a place to get your haircut up there. Um, sort of NASA meets NASCAR up there. It's true, it's true. Um, but they were really, uh, they were very, very nice to me. And I spent, I spent the, 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 the day there, most of the night, they were playing music, and we had the coffee going and talking about LSU and the Sooners and who's going to do this. And, and, you know, it just was a really fascinating experience because this is what is going on across the country. Um, and the whole purpose we were there was to pump this fluid into the rock in 150 sections because you might, on a big, long well, you might do it 30 times. Because every time you frack or you execute a frack, the amount of cracks that are created is sort of, um, it's, it's larger than, uh, think about the, the malls, a big mall, and all the square footage of a mall, that the amount of fracking is, is multiple times that square footage. That's the kind of fracks, and you do it again and again and again, because you want to create all this contact between the well and the rock, and that's where the oil and gas will come out of the rock and into the well and flow up. Um, so that's sort of, that's what it is. Um, oh, right, I, I, I said many. I, I was missing 35 times the square footage of the Mall of America. That's a good frack. They're not all good fracks, but that gives you a sense as to how much. So one thing I really want to talk about real quickly is why do we frack? Why is the industry and the country, and I, I use we because we're all in this together, regulators, people, we're all using the energy. Many people are involved in the industry. Why do we frack? The industry doesn't frack because it likes to get into a tussle with the environmentalists and have a, have a spat. That's not why they're doing it. They're, they're fracking because um, there are no spindle tops left. There are no great reservoirs that when you tap into it, the oil just comes flying up and, and you're great. No, the oil and gas that's left, you have to go into and, and force your will onto the rock. Um, and the companies that are going overseas, you end up with things like uh, uh, Gorgon and Wheatstone, this giant uh, Australian project that Chevron's running uh, off the coast of Australia, the engineer who helped, one of the engineers who helped discover that uh, gas deposit is going to retire. He did it as a young engineer. He's going to retire, and they're just going to start the gas flowing in 2015. The project will cost somewhere around $50 billion. Once again, Kashagan in Kazakhstan, another $50 billion project uh, it's taken years. It's an enormous uh, field, and it, another two-year delay was, was just announced. It's really the oil and gas that's left out in the rest of the world is, is really difficult and expensive to get at. And then all of a sudden with fracking, it turns out that you can drill a $10 million well and have a 99% chance of success in North Dakota or South Texas. Uh, and, and so that's why... We frack because there's oil and gas available, and in, certainly in the United States, we're enormous consumers of energy. The entire world is enormous consumers of energy. There's an incredible correlation between the economic prosperity of a country 
and the amount of energy it uses. So if you want to be a rich and successful country, you're going to use a lot of energy. So you've got the demand, and here's the supply. Um, and that's why we're fracking, because this is what's left right now. Yes, you can choose to go overseas and deal with um, hostile governments and cost overruns, or you can say, well, you know, maybe my, my money is better, better spent in, in North Dakota. Uh, I'm not going to get huge wealth, but I can drill a lot of them. And so that's really what takes hold, and that's where the capital starts flowing um, into, into the boom. That's why we have the boom. So we really are clearly having an energy revolution in this country. Things are, and, and revolution in the sense that things are changing. Uh, I was uh, out in um, Santa Barbara at a conference the Wall Street Journal runs, and, uh, and there were a number of CEOs there from utilities and uh, Peabody Coal and some solar companies, and they all, they don't agree on very much, but they all agreed we're going through a, rep we're at the beginning of an energy revolution in this country. Things are changing. Renewables are growing very fast. Gas, um, natural gas is growing in importance. Coal is starting to lose importance. We're having discussions that were just inconceivable a few years ago. A few years ago, we were supposed to be uh, making sure we built enough import terminals because we were running out of gas. We need to bring in a lot of natural gas. Now we've got so many export terminals that we're trying to figure out do we want to be the largest exporter in the world or the second largest exporter? That's, that's, if you look at the amount of capacity that's been permitted, that's the question. Are we going to be number one? Are we going to be ahead of cutter or not? Um, and so one of the things, and then you, you stack that up against um, the, 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 the environmental changes, the climate changes, what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is talking about, and greenhouse gases, and that's also driving changes in the energy landscape. And so all of these are really important critical questions, and one of the things that I point out in my book, and I think it's very important, is that once you start a revolution in the political sense, you're never quite sure where it ends up. Look at Egypt. This is an amazing revolution that happened in the streets, and three or four years later, it didn't quite end up the way people thought. Well, the same is true, I think, for energy revolutions. We've started the revolution. Fracking and, and the, the growth of all this natural gas and, and oil as well has started this energy revolution. But where are we going to end up? I don't know. And frankly, I don't know anyone who does. And I ask lots of people that question. So one of the, one of the, 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 the big messages here is that we – are figuring that out, and we will continue to figure that out. Where do we end up? Do we want to end up exporting lots of oil and gas and helping the balance of trade? Do we want to uh, take all the uh, increase our energy independence by taking all our, our uh, trucks and, and, and trains and not running them on diesel anymore and running them on on you know U.S. natural gas? Uh, do you, there are lots of different options. Do you want to close down all the coal plants and help with? The, the quality of the air and run natural gas instead. These are all possibilities. You can't do them all. You're going to have to be some choices made. And so in doing this, in, in, in answering the question, in, in looking at this bigger picture, this change, um, I'm, I've been asked a lot in the course of, of the last three weeks that I've been crisscrossing the country and doing radio interviews, speeches like this, is it safe? Good question. The problem is people want a yes or no answer. They want me to really simplify it. Is it safe? Is it dangerous? And I'm afraid to tell you that there are no simple answers here. This is the energy business. This is the energy puzzle. There are unforeseen costs. There are some necessary evils. Is medicine safe? Is nuclear power safe? Is fracking safe eludes that an easy answer? Um, and the problem is we want a simple solution to what's one of the most complex problems the world is facing right now. 
how to produce the energy that we all need and count on and expect in a way that doesn't emit so much greenhouse gases, in a way that's affordable. And, you know, that's the challenge really we're all facing right now. And, and we're facing it as producers, we're facing it as governments, we're facing it as consumers. And that's one of the, you know, th this book, a lot of this book is about the stories, the people who brought us here, the, 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 the risk takers like Aubrey McClendon and George Mitchell um, and Larry Nickel, Devin, uh, the people who took the risk and got the reward, who figured out the technology, um, and stories of other people who've been forgotten of history. The, uh, tell the story of Otis Grimes, who in 1919 lived in Burke Burnett, Texas, during the big Burke Burnett oil boom, and bought a house for his family, his wife and kids, and someone put a derrick right up next to it, and the engine right in the front. And he, he sued and said, this is ridiculous. I, I can't live. I can't talk to my wife in my house. You know, and I've been thinking about that, that, that story of Otis Grimes because of the lawsuit that just was settled in, in, in Dallas a couple days ago, the Aruba petroleum lawsuit. It's, it's similar issues. What is the oil industry allowed to do? Um, how close to houses can it get? These are questions that many, many cities around here have addressed. What's the setback? How onerous do you want to make it? How much do you want to bring it in? But, you know, I just I, I wanted to make a couple more points before I get to questions uh, because I, it's been my experience. Lots of people have very good questions, and I'm, I'm happy to answer them. Um, but I want to point out a couple things. So in 1973, President Nixon announced Project Independence, and this was going to eliminate our dependence on overseas oil uh, by 1980. Well, by the end of the decade, uh, the dependence on overseas oil had doubled. And every single president since then has pledged to lower the imports of oil. Well, it's happening, finally. It took a long time. I think we, were, we used to import about 60 to 7% of our oil. We're now down to 30 to 40%. Um, Boom, the energy boom is responsible for that. And there are lots of there are lots of issues associated with it. Earthquakes, potential for wells not to be built right, um, emissions, air emissions. These are really important issues that need to be ironed out. And many of them are, and the industry is tackling some of them, and regulators are tackling some of them. But there have been incredible Yeah, I just I, I always come back to this question. There are no easy answers to this energy puzzle. And so when my parents asked me, what should we do, one of the first things they said is, well, we drove around to talk to our neighbors, mostly dairy farmers, some corn farmers out there, and they'd all signed leases already. So whatever we did, we were going to get the trucks, the rigs, um, the, the industrialization of, of this. Uh, so they decided, they, so they said, well, is it safe? And I said, well, you know, a couple years ago, I was out in New Mexico at Ted Turner's ranch, running a story. He has this beautiful ranch in Bermejo, New Mexico. And uh, you can pay a lot of money and go hunting there. It's this incredible lodge. I know I'm sounding a little like a salesman for Ted Turner, but it really is quite beautiful. Um, but El Paso at the time had uh, a gas lease. And so the Ted Turner's ranch manager spent a lot of time working with El Paso on the rules. How many trucks could come onto the property every day? What type of paint could they paint the pump jacks and the other equipment so it didn't uh, stand out. And they went through like four or five different types of paint. I had written that story for the Wall Street Journal. I said, well, that's the approach you need to take. You're in control right now. You have 
the upper hand until you sign that paper. So where do you want the, the well pad to go? And what rules do you want to construct? And you know, while you're at it, test your water right now. So if anything changes, you have proof of that. Uh, and so they came up with all these sort of common sense approaches. And I'm here to tell you that two wells have been drilled. They, they, they built an eight well pad from World Well. Um, the water's fine. It's not, not that everything is perfect, but the grandkids still go up there. They have a great time. They go canoeing on the lake. They wander around. There's still plenty of deer. The area has not been destroyed, but there have been some issues. Uh, a gathering line, a small pipeline was, was being drilled under a nearby stream, excuse me, on their property, and some of the barite used to drill spilled, and it went into the, to the stream. There was a small fish kill. Not the end of the world, but I was frankly a little surprised that the state of Pennsylvania didn't see fit to issue a fine. That the regulations, as I read it, were pretty clear. If you dump something into a free-flowing stream in the state of Pennsylvania and there's a fish kill, that seemed to be, uh, seemed to be a fine, but um, uh, they didn't issue it. And you know, a lot of the people, and I, I would put my parents in this category, but I, I write a lot about the people, whether it's individuals in Pennsylvania or people who live around Texas, uh, around Fort Worth and different places who made the decision to say, look, we're not going to put our head in the sand. We're not going to say, no, you can't come in and drill because we know we need this energy and we want to play a role in providing that energy. And frankly, sometimes we want the checks to go along with it. But at the same time, we're not just going to open the doors and say, come on in. We're going to ask tough questions to make sure that the water is protected and the air is protected. And that seems to be what's going on in this country right now. We're having this argument, but we all sort of want the same thing, which is the ability to do uh, oil and gas drilling to provide the energy that we need and we want because it provides us with a lot of benefits, but at the same time do it in a way that in a generation or two we look back and we say, ah, we made the right choices. And it reminds me of a story that I heard a lot growing up about this property that my parents had because they, they wanted to build this small um, house to live in. So they got one of those, uh, I guess back in the 70s, you could buy a house on a pallet and the truck would come out and just dump a bunch of pallets and you, you build it. And you know, my parents and their friends, these, these were not carpenters and plumbers, but they did their best. They threw, they threw, it into it. They threw themselves into this challenge. My, my dad said he would do the, um, the electrical work because he had taken a uh, shop in seventh grade. <laughs> so he did, and the inspector came out and said, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna approve this. There's some problems here you need to fix. Uh, uh, and so he starts wandering off. My dad kind of chases after him, thinking maybe he, you know, maybe he wanted a 20 or something just to kind of go through. And the, da and the, the inspector turns around and says, no, 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 no. You see those kids playing over there, and one of them was me. If something were to go wrong and those kids would be hurt, I would never forgive myself. I'm not going to approve this until you get it right. So my dad had to go back and get it right. And that seems to be kind of a good lesson. Money is important. We all like money. Money makes the world go around. Nothing wrong with money, but getting this right is important because this is a once-in-a-generational chance to figure out how this energy system is going to work, how the, what the energy landscape is going to look like in a generation. And getting it right is really important. So thank you very much. Thank you, Russell. Let's take the first question from one of our students. And uh, the question is, should we continue fracking instead of being more aggressive in addressing renewable and gotcha. developing renewable energy? Got them over there? Yep. All right, great question. Um, 
there is a sense, and it's trust me, it's not just in, in amongst high school students. It's all over the place that you need to either be pro-renewable or pro-fossil fuel. You have to choose a side. You can't be both. That's not really reality. Wind and solar, the two big renewable energies, have been growing at phenomenal rates, doubling and tripling over, over uh, the period of a few years. At the same time that we have so much natural gas, we don't know what to do with it, and the price of natural gas crashed. So. As, as, as a business reporter, I look at that and say, okay, price of natural gas hit a 10-year low. And at the same time, wind and solar kept growing really fast. That shows to me they're not necessarily competing to bump each other out. And in fact, if you want a power grid that's going to work with 10%, 20%, 30% renewable energy, renewable energy is wonderful. But sometimes it doesn't work. You can't dispatch it. You can't tell it to turn on always. You can tell it to turn off, but you can't control the wind. So you need something to back it up, balancing power. And that balancing power turns out is natural gas. Natural gas is really good at that because you can turn on your natural gas power plants really quickly and turn them off. You can't do that with coal. If you tell a coal plant on, off, on, off, you're going to break it, basically. And you don't want to do that with nuclear. Um, so... So there is a way that you can have this bonanza of natural gas and use it to encourage more renewable energy. And that's something that's going on right now on the grid. So you don't I, I encourage you not to think of an either or policy. And I encourage you to think of a policy that tries to bring them together to head in the direction we want to head. Other questions? Just a few show of hands. Take one right up here in the front. You'll wait for the microphone, please. Oh. Josh is going to bring it up. Russell, how do you explain the, uh, the disparity between New York and Pennsylvania? It's the same field. <coughs> Pennsylvania is going and blowing. We've seen, we've seen population growth, income growth. North side of the Susquehanna River, there's nothing going on. There's been a de facto moratorium right. years. What's the story? How do you explain that? Well, there are a couple. First, pop political. Um, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has ambitions and – uh, presidential ambitions, let's say. And, and you know, remember his dad, you know, Mario, couldn't make a decision. He was called Hamlet on the Hudson. Well, I think his son's got a little bit of that. Uh, couldn't quite figure out what the most politically advantageous thing to do is. But the other big difference is that um, in that part of the Marcellus, the Marcellus is very good around Pittsburgh and then also has another part, sweet spot up in north central Pennsylvania up into New York. Um, and in that part of Pennsylvania, it's not a real vacation. Most of the land is owned and operated by people who work the land and for generations have a real strong sense of the land is there to provide for us and to work the land and get something from it. And so when the boom starts and people come and say, we want to drill here, they're comfortable with that. They're comfortable with the idea that you put something into the land, you get something out, and you make money off the land because that's what they've been doing. They've been raising dairy farms, dairy herds, alfalfa, hay. Um, but you go up into New York, and a lot more of the land is owned now by people who don't work the land but want to preserve it. They are, they're, this is their vacation spot. This is where they escape from New York because it's just New York got overwhelming for them. And they don't want that development. They don't want the trucks on the road. So it was, there's a real sort of demographic difference that, that drove that. 
On the one hand, in Pennsylvania, you had people who wanted the money, wanted the development, who saw the land as something that you worked, and up in New York, they more saw the land as something you preserved. And I think that's really what drove the discussion in two different ways. Right behind you. So are, are you familiar with a guy named Bjorn Lomborg? Yeah, I saw him actually a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I just encountered him. Uh, yes, the, uh, what's he called, the, the radical, the sensible environmentalist? I forget what well, he's is. got uh, something called the Copenhagen Consensus yeah. Center. And he, Anyway, a couple of things. Yeah. He mentioned that in the last year, or, or I'm not sure what the, the periodic period was, that Europe has spent over $60 billion advancing renewables, yeah. whereas the United States has earned over $100 billion extracting natural gas and the United States has done a far better job of reducing greenhouse gases as a result. So we may <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. It's but, a little more complicated than that, but he is, he's got a really good point. But my question was about it, why? It, yeah. And it seems to be because something I didn't know beforehand, we're the only country in the world where private individuals own our mineral rights. And I didn't know that, yeah. except for a couple of places in Canada. And, and, and so what's, is it, what's the historical context of that? Yeah. And, and I had assumed everybody did since we do. It's in the book. Um, but no, it's a good question. Uh, so you, there are a couple different things. Let me, let me sort of tackle them in reverse order. You're absolutely right. The United States is the only place in the world where there's private ownership of mineral rights. And that's why, so this, this shale boom here in the United States, there's shales around the world. There's shales in Canada, yeah, Canada, uh, China, Argentina, Russia, South Africa, Poland. But they've had trouble... Uh, not so much in Canada. Canada's actually been devel developing. But in China and in Poland, they're having trouble developing the shales for a number of reasons. But one of them is they can't figure out what incentives to offer local uh, residents to, so that they won't be protesting and blocking the trucks coming in. Whereas in the United States, that really wasn't a problem because the locals were getting very large uh, bonus checks and, and signed on it. And, but, you know, once you sign on something, you say, well, then I agree to this. So, yes, you're absolutely correct about that, and that's been a key reason why the United States has, has had this energy boom, and there's very little going on out, uh, outside of North America. Um, but to get to your other question, um, the complicating factor, so Germany has been very robustly interested in promoting renewable energy. A lot of solar in Germany, which is a little strange because it's not the most sunny place in the world. Um, but in the last two weeks, the German government has actually said, you know, we need to pull back. This is getting very expensive. And, and so part of the problem that they face is that after Fukushima, they shut down their nuclear plants, so they had to bring in a lot more coal. So yes, they have, their carbon emissions are going up. In the United States, greenhouse gas emissions have gone down for the last five years, most for a number of reasons, um, better fuel efficiency in cars, but also we're shutting down coal plants and replacing with gas plants. Those have been the big two reasons. Um, one of the things I think is really often overlooked is that we've been adding a lot of renewables too. Maybe not quite the scale of Germany, but the United States, Texas, the ERCOT grid had 29% wind a couple weeks ago. It was a set of new record. It was unbelievable. So, but why aren't we having the same discussion about how expensive it is? Because natural gas prices are so low. It's helped avoid the sticker shock of all this new renewables. That's one of the more amazing things I think people don't talk about very much. We're bringing a lot of gas in. Gas has not been over five bucks consistently for several years. Um, and so that's helping. So people, you know, you have all of these uh, state rules that say we want to get to 30% renewables, 20% renewables. 
not a single one has been rescinded since it was passed, despite the fact that Alec and the Koch brothers are starting to target them and some people are upset about them. So why not? Because we don't have the sticker shock. We don't have high – if we had high-priced electricity, I, I, I'm sure that renewables would be on the retreat. So sort of getting back to this question, how do they play together? Well, they've been working together quite nicely in terms of growing renewables and growing gas. So I hope that kind of answers the question. It's, it's been a remarkable – story, and I'm actually, I need to write an article about this for the journal. I promised my editors that, so <laughs> look for it in a couple weeks. Thank you. Um, I, I just uh, appreciate you coming here, and I have a few comments. I'm glad you addressed the K in fracking, because those of us in the industry uh, noticed that and were concerned that that uh, identified a bias straight off the bat. Um, and so um, I just wanted to ask you, have, uh, and I haven't read your book, so I mm -hmm. apologize, but have you identified, uh, like this morning I just pulled off, uh, that we've, in this hemisphere, part of the hemisphere, we've already had 43 earthquakes today. Mm -hmm. yeah. not, today? Not today, and okay. I've got it here. Um, and, and the thing is that it's, it's not being reported because... It's worse than I thought. Well, the thing is, uh, and I was investigating this, mm -hmm. is that earthquakes have not really risen since 1900, the amount of sensors have. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from 350 sensors mm -hmm. in 1937 to over 8,000 now, and that's not including the mobile ones, which are all concentrating around these oil and gas areas. So to put that into context, we have, you know, sort of like finding breast cancer, the more you look, the more you're going sure. to find. So, um, and there's benefits to that, but also we have to put it into the context of that. In regard to water, um, oil and gas. Let me just add some comments. Real quick. Um, there's been a lot of good peer-reviewed science work, which, which seems to me to show that injection wells do cause small earthquakes. Um, injection wells, when, when you pump all the water in, you've got to bring the water out. A lot of the time that water can't be cleaned up and recycled, so it gets put into an injection well and injected deep underground. If you're doing that near an active fault, you are probably going to increase the number of earthquakes. Um, not everyone agrees with this. The, the state of Texas just hired a seismologist to study this, but that certainly there, there's been a lot of work that suggests that. So that's the scary news, more earthquakes. And, and I do think there are more earthquakes because if you just look in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been an, an uptick around Fort Worth area. Um, the good news is that injection wells are um, licensed, re regulated by the federal government, although some states take primacy and, and handle it for the federal government. When we permit an injection well, in the United States, we do not ask, is this near a fault? That's not part of the permitting process. So there seems to be to be a fairly simple fix to say, okay, let's figure out where the earthquake faults are that we're essentially lubricating and, and causing these slip, these slip faults to happen more often, and do our injection somewhere else because you don't have to get too far from them. So that seems to be one of the easiest problems to identify and solve, and there's certainly a lot of movement and interest in that. Now, two weeks ago, the state of Ohio came out and said, oh, by the way, we think fracking itself may have caused some earthquakes. That's really controversial, and um, I think the jury's still out very much on that. Um, I, I'm, I just don't see the evidence yet. I'm not willing to say no. I just don't see the evidence on that. <laughs> it would seem that the desire to increase exports would be negatively affecting the desire for energy independence, and I'm curious if you could characterize what the debate has been like on that. 
Well, a lot of the debate on energy exports um, has I mean, there's a number of different components to it. Environmentalists don't like it because when you export, that means you drill more wells. You know, because you export, you're going to drive prices up, and that means more wells. So environmentalists don't like it. But then a lot of big industrial energy consumers don't like it either because they say, well, wait a second. We've got this great advantage. We've got cheap energy, half the price of Europe and a third of the price or a quarter of the price of Asia. Let's, let's have a renaissance of manufacturing here. Um, so that's really where a lot of the, um, the debate has been over exporting whether we should or shouldn't do it. And then other people say, we're a free trade nation. You know, if, if we start saying you can't export, we'd be quite hypocritical since we've been preaching that for the last however many years. So you know, that's sort of where the debate you know, has gone, although we're, I think we're very, uh, certainly on gas, I think we, we're pretty much, that, that debate is settled. We're going to be a, a, a pretty major exporter, um, it seems right now. So in terms of independence, I don't see, I think we're going to become independent, not in the sense that we're producing all the energy we need here in the United States. That doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of how we've developed this global energy system. But when we import less oil, when we need less imported oil, all of a sudden you, we can become a little pickier as a buyer. We don't just have to, you know, when we're importing 70% of our oil, it's, it's, you got some, we'll take it. And then you become more incumbent and dependent on them to provide military support, to keep the sea lanes open, maybe provide military support to make sure that faction, that government stays in place. But when you become less reliant on them, you get more independence. You can say, well, we're not so much, we don't need to take, you know, from you country X, we can go to country Y, you know, because we don't need it that much. Um, I think we're certainly heading to a place where in a, in a couple of decades, North America could talk about independence with Canada and Mexico. Uh, but I'm not sure we necessarily we should go that route. I, I think cutting off ties to the rest of the world doesn't, I'm just not sure it makes a, a lot of sense. Can you address the amount of water that the industry is using in fracking? Yeah, that's a very controversial topic. Thank you for saving that for last, so I have lots of time. Um, <laughs> depends on the, uh, the area. Uh, South Texas, is, uh, you need to use a lot of water, about 5 million gallons per frack. Uh, Barnett Shale is a little less. I think it's about 3 million gallons. There's a lot of water um, that's required. Most of it actually ends up staying in the ground. Some of it's brought back to be recycled. There are two common sense type of approaches to this. First of all, we use a lot of potable water that we can use for other things to frack. Uh, the people I talk to say we could use... Um, Salty water, brackish water for fracking. There's no particularly good reason why. You just have to work on some of the chemistry. Uh, that seems like a first step to say, uh, let's, let's use as much of this brackish water, which we can't use for human consumption, which we can't use for cattle, uh, and, and use less fresh water. The second thing, and I think this is a little more tricky, the oil and gas industry is so rich that when it comes time to find water, uh, it's competing against uh, agriculture and some cities. And it's not a fair fight. Uh, they can outbid and buy what they need. And there are lots of very important uses of water, especially in drought-stricken Texas. We need water to drink. We need water for ag to support our agricultural communities. We need water for industry. Um, the good news is, is that there's been a lot of research out of the University of Texas and other places that, that says if you look from fracking straight through to generating electricity, natural gas 
is actually less water intensive than coal is. Coal uses a lot of water also. So um, yes, a lot of water is being used for fracking, but uh, it actually on a per output basis, per kilowatt, per megawatt generated, it's not as bad as it, as it appears and there are ways to make it better. So. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.